From So Say We All in San Diego, welcome back to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. There is so much good news to share with all of you listening out there. First off, our first ever show in San Francisco was a great success. We made so many friends and we would love to go back and do another show as soon as we can find another venue to host us. It's just Bay Area real estate, so how hard can that be for a small nonprofit to afford, right? <laughs> uh. We also had a beautiful performance of Haydn's Seven Last Words, collaborating with our friends, the Hausman Quartet. It's our third time collaborating with them, and we are definitely working on some ideas to work with them again sooner than later. New stuff, new music, and we cannot wait to tell you about it as soon as we figure that out. And thirdly, our good friend Dallas McLaughlin has a new comedy out titled I Didn't Start the Fire and Other Lies. It's comprised entirely of true stories recorded at So Say We All events over the last 10 years. Stories that span the gamut, featuring Dallas's blown opportunities, ruined run-ins with heroes, and that one time he dethroned an entertainment head while dressed as a mime. Among others, it's available starting today on Apple Music and Bandcamp. Once again, that's I Didn't Start the Fire and Other Lies, Dallas McLaughlin. Do give yourselves that treat. All right, on with the podcast. We are super excited for our upcoming show this Sunday, April 16th at Bar Lubitsch in West Hollywood. And so to get in the mood for that drive from San Diego up north and the show, today's stories come to you from our inaugural show in Los Angeles, Midnight Strikes, recorded in January of 2023. And starting us off, Jennifer Corley and her story, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Here's Jennifer. I was what women call a late bloomer and men call a prude. <laughs> I didn't have sex until my senior year of college. I didn't know how to masturbate. I didn't figure it out. I didn't try to. I thought if I don't know what sex feels like, what good is it gonna do me to try to create that same feeling for myself? Once I discovered dry humping, I was content with that. <laughs> I didn't want to actually have sex. It was so daunting. My mom had raised me believing that sex was naughty and not in the good way. It was bad. It was something for trashy, depraved people unless you were married. When I was a freshman in high school, a tale circulated of a girl classmate who had sex with her junior boyfriend in his truck. In this anecdote, she screamed so loudly that all the windows in his truck shattered. <laughs> the girl in question later told me, no, no, no. What had actually happened was that she was indeed screaming, but she was flailing around in delight from the great sex, and she accidentally kicked her foot through the windshield. <laughs> The clarification was no relief to me and still made sex seem incredibly dangerous. So in my first year of college, I was dry grinding, so dignified, with the guy I was hanging out with when he wanted to have sex with me and I told him no. He reassured me that it was okay, we didn't have to do the penis and the vagina stuff, that we could do something else <laughs> to give each other pleasure. He looked at me with a fabricated, sexy look <laughs> as he slid downwards and said, I know ways. 
I knew he meant oral sex, but this presentation of his supposed talents, this slimy goading, did not turn me on. I laughed, and I left. <laughs> I returned to my friends and told them the story, and for the next few years, it just became our go-to joke. Can anybody help me with geology? I know ways. <laughs> my car won't start, you guys. I know ways. I feel like if I could just throw up, I'd feel better. I know ways. <laughs> I had that guy in mind for a while. Every time I thought of sex and men, men as sleaze buckets, and my mom's admonitions of premarital sex being the activity of wretched people who didn't deserve love, and the thoughts of getting wounded by shards of glass, they all hovered in my mind. Guys kept dumping me and calling me prude when I wouldn't fuck them, or at least give them a blowjob or a courtesy handy. Finally, I got an actual boyfriend. It worked out well for me because we met in the UK just as I was days from leaving. I hit it off with Rich, an artist. We kissed, and then when I got back to the States, we got to know each other through correspondence. There was no pressure for sex. Our relationship grew the old-fashioned way, in love letters. Before internet temptations to play detective existed, before incessantly checking for an email reply kept a person chained to a computer, much less a phone, and when daily international phone calls were still too expensive to be a feasible option, we would exchange letters and photos and plan our monthly phone calls. When Rich came for an in-person visit, I was ready to have actual sex because that was quite a lot of foreplay. <laughs> no more outer course for this gal. I was in love. I wasn't scared, and purity be damned, I went for it. It was really great. I loved it, and I knew what felt good and why. So we continued occasional visits. It was really good when we did have sex, but there was something in our sex life that seemed to be missing, even aside from regularity. Sound. I didn't know what sounds to make. <laughs> what words to say out loud. My only reference was film and TV. And I knew I shouldn't trust that. <laughs> Thank you, Dustin. Thanks for that laugh. Uh, my fellow Seinfeld fans in the house. <laughs> I thought, surely I'll learn in time from my boyfriend. But a long-distance relationship with in-person visits every few months can only last so long. After that, there was Sam, a beefy, smart, but immature rugby player. We were getting a yeah. Mm. <laughs> we were getting hot and heavy on his couch one day while Basic Instinct played on TV. Yeah, it got things going. I was taking note of his oohs and his oh yes. But then I heard, ooh, hold on, hold on, as he climbed off of me to watch the scene in which Sharon Stone uncrosses her legs. I left. There was Chris, a bleached, platinum, cool New York City musician. Things were escalating in his bed when he suddenly, purposefully, tightened his lips over mine and burped into my mouth. He fell over laughing. I felt it coming up, and I just had to do it, he said. I left. <laughs> I wasn't learning anything about proper bedroom talk. I met Tom, an aspiring filmmaker who became my boyfriend, and I finally learned true dirty talk. 
Not only did I learn it, I was inspired to create it. He was so into talking filthy that it got me going, got me hot, and had phrases pouring out of my mouth that I never thought I could speak. I got into watching porn because of and for him. I became a sexter. <laughs> this had all gone ridiculously beyond some nasty little pillow talk. We were together for several years, but over time, I grew kind of weary. Our relationship was falling apart. I became frustrated with sexting, trying to use one hand to complete business and the other hand to text. Have you ever seen phones from 2006? <laughs> I was increasingly turned off by the porn, the misogyny of women being held and kept down. I was getting angry with all of Tom's dirty talk. The stuff I'd been wanting to engage in for so long now felt like a slap in the face. You like it, whore? Are you my dirty slut? Beg me for it, you little cunt. I wanted to think of equivalent names to call him, but I couldn't. Yeah, I like it, you little shithead. <laughs> I don't know, try calling a guy a filthy slut in bed as a woman and see if you're taken seriously. <laughs> a sense of lost respect slowly washed over me. Maybe the respect was never there. The frustrations were symptoms of enormous problems. Commitment, abandonment, arguing, cracks in the bedrock. We crumbled into a pile of pebbles, and I left. I moved to California, where I met Stephen, a real estate agent. He loved to whisper in my ear, your boobies make my wiener hard. <laughs> <laughs> Do I really need to say I left? Um, then there was Lewis, whose simple refrain was, Bam, bam, bam! <laughs> he was in tech. <laughs> These men, the noises they made, the things they said and did in the sack, might have been right for them. And maybe even some other women. But not right for me. But I was learning from myself. My upbringing and my late blooming had made me so self-conscious, so worried about getting everything right, that I hadn't been getting lost in the moment, which at least some of those guys had been getting right. I just wasn't enjoying it enough. So it was a cumulative process. Over the years, over the guys, over my slutting it up, I started relaxing, making my own requests, making whatever bellow, cry, phrase, or moan felt right to me, not caring what sounds the guys made. It depended on the relationship, and it just depended on me. Instead of waiting for the perfect lesson or demonstration, I just became my own noisemaker. <laughs> I've let go, <laughs> yeah, sign that email sheet, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I've let go of the shame of my youth. I don't put pressure on myself. That's not true. Of course I do sometimes. I have not reached enlightenment. Um, but I'm usually comfortable enough to just go with the moment. Some sweet pillow talk, some hot dom stuff, some whatever floats our boats. I'm quiet when it suits me even. But I'm just going to do me. That's Jennifer Corley, everybody. 
That was Jennifer Corley. Next up, Vamp First Timer Travis Lowe and his story, Theater in the Clouds. Here's Travis. When I worked in a movie theater in my late teens and early 20s, I lived a lot of my life after midnight, especially when I became a manager and head projectionist at 19. I was responsible for scheduling showtimes, building up and doing tech runs of the film prints, and general day-to-day management of employees. That's quite a bit of responsibility thrown onto a person whose brain isn't fully developed. Let's just say that impulse control wasn't always top priority for me. And with the place being owned by a billionaire who thought the best way to bring business to a struggling independent theater was to add love sacks, couches, and blankets to the main house, impulse control wasn't a priority from top to bottom. (laughs) For those not in the know, love sacks are oversized memory foam beanbag chairs and sectionals that are perfect for discreetly fucking in the back of a movie theater. (laughs) In fact, there was a certain back corner of theater one, barely illuminated by the hue of a scarlet light which we all lovingly refer to as the Red Light District. The amount of people that I caught dancing the horizontal mambo in that back corner was incalculable. The Love Sack Theater was doomed for sexual depravity from the start. When the renovations on the downstairs theater were finally completed, it was clear that corporate had no idea what kind of monster they had on their hands. The first film they decided to open the Love Sack Theater with was an independent drama called The Babysitters starring John Leguizamo, Katherine Watterson, and Cynthia Nixon. The plot revolves around a 16-year-old girl who starts an escort service after sleeping with one of her babysitting clients. It was tawdry, it was gross, it was literally the worst fucking movie for the grand reopening of our main house. We only sold about three to four tickets per show. Every customer that bought a ticket that opening Friday was a single white middle-aged male. After purchasing their ticket, they would shamefully approach the concession stand. Uh, can I just grab some napkins? Sure. They then proceeded to grab a handful of napkins before slinking into the theater without purchasing anything from the concession stand. I'll let you fill in the rest. I immediately complained to corporate about these interactions and explained that they were setting a dangerous precedent. They agreed immediately and swapped the movie out with the romantic comedy, What Happens in Vegas? (laughs) Little did I know that that would set the precedent of romantic comedies dominating the Love Sack Theater. I had to hand it to the billionaire uh, that wanted to put those Love Sacks in, though. I may have despised those damn seats, but after corporate realized that we needed to start playing mainstream films in the Love Sack Theater, we were no longer struggling. The theater was originally built in the 1940s in Dallas, Texas, as a one-house theater that could seat over 2,000 people. It smelled of buttered popcorn, decades of old cigarettes, and past oppression. The balcony level used to be segregated for colored people only, before it was converted into two smaller theaters with stadium seating, while the main house downstairs is where our forever unclean love sacks lived. Since the theater was so old, it was considered a Texas landmark, and as such, didn't need to be renovated in order to adhere to any fire codes or Americans with Disability Act regulations. We worked in a death trap. In fact, people have died in the theater, and I believe I have personally interacted with one of those ghosts. One particular night, I experienced something that I still question to this very day. The last shows of the night were about to start, and as a manager and projectionist, I had a habit of waiting until tickets uh, to the last showing were purchased before threading the film through the projector. 
It made my job faster at the end of the night since I didn't have to wait for the movie to be over before heading home. No one had bought tickets for what was playing in theater two, and at this point, no one would. So I headed through the empty theater up to the projection booth to break down the projector for the night. As I shut everything down, I looked through the porthole to see an old man sitting in the theater. I thought it was odd because I had just walked through the theater seconds earlier, and he wasn't there, but thought maybe he'd just been walking behind me and I hadn't noticed. I radioed to the box office. Hey guys, do we sell any tickets to theater two? Nope. Well, I got a guy in here, maybe he's in the wrong theater. I walked down the steps from the projection booth into the theater and within the 30 seconds it took me to travel down the stairs, he disappeared. I was confused. I walked over to the adjacent theater to see if maybe he'd realized his mistake. In the theater was a young couple, the only two tickets that were sold for that showing. I walked downstairs to the concession stand. Um, hey, weird question. Did you happen to see an old man come downstairs? The concessionist stared at me. No, why? It's nothing. And I left it at that. The next day I came in and started chatting with the general manager, JT, a 30-something hipster who was always cool as a cucumber. I told him the exact story I just told you, and his response, oh, that was the old guy that died here in the 90s. One of the previous managers here had the same thing happen. He called the cops thinking someone was hiding in the building. After the cops searched the property, they cited him for filing a false police report, and he got fired. Well, thank God I didn't call the cops. Being a stupid fucking kid with quite a lot of power, I, I wielded it as graciously as I possibly could. I was the same age as all of my employees, and the last thing I wanted was for them to see me as a power-hungry prick that did not consider them my peers. So I always let people hang out after the night was over and all the customers had left. We would watch movies together late at night on the big screen as we smoked weed, drank till we couldn't see straight, and smoked cigarettes until our lungs screamed for reprieve. All of this took place inside the theater, mind you. There's that issue with impulse control again. I was always worried that after one of our nights of heavy drinking and smoking, I would come in the next day and our previous night of debauchery would be discovered. But it seemed that decades of old cigarette smoke and general disarray of the couches and love sacks somehow covered our tracks. Either that or the fact that I was the only trained projectionist and third in command kept me just above water. To say this, is, this was one of my favorite jobs is an understatement. As a cinephile, not only was I in heaven, I was a god in this heaven. <laughs> One special Thursday night, I had the pleasure of performing a tech run of Pineapple Express before its Friday opening. <laughs> I let every employee know that they could bring whoever they wanted, as long as that person brought some of that sweet, sticky icky. <laughs> Keep in mind, this was a small theater with 12 employees in total. We were all excited for this movie. I mean, shit, this was at the height of the R-rated comedies of the mid-aughts, and Seth Rogen had been producing banger after banger. The 40-year-old virgin, knocked up, super bad, and now the culmination of his skills was bringing us one of the greatest stoner comedies of all time. It's 11.59 on Thursday night. The general manager, JT, popped into the projection booth to tell me he's headed home. I gave him a nod and followed him outside to smoke a cigarette before I texted my employees that I'm starting the movie in the next five minutes. I lit my cigarette and took a quick drag. As my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I glanced around the normally barren parking lot. Strangely, I saw hundreds of cars. <laughs> I got a sense of unease as I took a long drag from my cigarette. 
I sent out the text, and almost simultaneously, all the doors on all the cars in the parking lot popped open. <laughs> Over 200 people had shown up to watch this screening. My cigarette barely hung onto my agape mouth as I watched person after person file past me with a myriad of finger guns, thumbs ups, and high fives. If anyone from the FBI is listening to this, these were all family members and this was a family reunion. I'm not trying to catch a felony charge for unlawful exhibition of a copyrighted film here tonight. I walked into the theater to see a deluge of people swirling about. I decided it was time for a little speech before the show. I stood up on the stage in front of the screen and the dull roar of the crowd quieted. I played it cool. How's everybody doing tonight? Thunderous cheers and applause broke out. That's what I like to hear. Well, if you were invited tonight, then you already know that there was a stipulation for your attendance. More hooping and hollering from the crowd as they all began to produce various forms of paraphernalia from backpacks, fanny packs, and purses. Good, I'm glad we're all in agreement. Without further ado, let's get this fucking show on the road. I hopped down from the stage and jogged back to the projection booth. As I did, the crowd lit up and smoke began pouring into the theater. As the movie started, I ran to my seat and as it played, blunts, bongs, bubblers, pipes, and joints were being passed around left and right. Say what you will about us stoners, but we sure are a communal bunch. <laughs> it was a glorious way to watch the movie, and I honestly think Seth Rogen would have given his stoner stamp of approval. As the final credits rolled and the last of my employees' friends trickled out of the theater, I turned on the house lights to assess the damage. Holy fucking shit. We had hotboxed the entire theater. Anyone standing in this room would get an instant contact high. Since we didn't have to adhere to fire codes, we didn't have sprinkler systems or smoke detectors. So my stomach was flipping like an Olympic gymnast. It was two in the morning, and the assistant general manager, Nixon, a notorious square, was coming to open for the first show in less than six hours. I was beyond fucked. I ran to all the emergency exit doors and busted them all open. I grabbed one of the crusty love sack blankets in the theater and started furiously trying to fan the smoke out. A couple of employees joined me. After about 10 minutes of us flapping about, it was clear that no progress was being made. I thought, well, this is it. You're gonna get fired for sure. I'm coming in the next, uh, the next day to work the four o'clock shift. I'll face the consequences tomorrow. All I can do now is sleep. The next day, I arrived at work wholly expecting to get shit-canned. As I walked through the front doors, I got a whiff of freshly popped popcorn, cigarettes, and the devil's lettuce. <laughs> I glanced at the concession stand. The employees looked at me with half-smiles and wide eyes, which read to me as, good luck, bud. <laughs> I walked into the manager's office to clock in, and there was Nixon. His face was twisted with anger. I am so mad right now. Oh yeah? Yeah, you won't believe what happened this morning. I went to start the first showing of Pineapple Express and I caught a guy in the red light district smoking weed. It smells like a skunk's butthole in the theater. I kicked that guy out immediately. Oh wow, I exclaimed. That's why it smells like weed. <laughs> you may think I learned something from this experience, but 
My punishment continues to elude me. And I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. This confession has meant nothing. I often think about that theater. Like an old lover, she haunts me. Sometimes I dream about her. I dream that I'm 20 years old and stupid again, climbing the rickety ladder all the way to the tip of her neon sign with a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other, looking over the barren wasteland of suburbia that surrounds here, or surrounds her. Here, in my little death trap, I didn't have to think of the future, nor did I want to. Sometimes, I envy those ghosts that wander her halls. My only hope is that she remembers me, and when my time comes, she embraces me, like Rose returning to the Titanic. <laughs> and I may return to my little heaven, my theater in the clouds. Woo! Travis Lowe, everybody, vamp first timer. Travis Lowe, everybody. Third on our lineup today is Kirsten Hernandez and Muddy Shoes. Here's Kirsten. I promised the new friends that I made at home, a pair of LDS missionaries, that I'd make the journey to see DC's Mormon temple. A few months before, the Beehive State Boys introduced me to their community after cornering me on my way to my late night class, traditionally the best way to introduce yourself to a young woman. <laughs> and said, what about you? What do you think of Jesus Christ? <laughs> Another student in the background glanced over her shoulder as she did a little jog in the opposite direction. <laughs> Everything about the missionaries, their matching cult-issued outfits, their symmetry, their general optimism towards life, would normally irritate the shit out of me. I had done enough church camp in my youth to, in my opinion, get me to a less roasty part of hell. And the closest I desired to get to religion nowadays was an Easter basket in my 20s. Please, Mommy, for listening. Uh, <laughs> but I had left a toxic and abusive relationship just two weeks later, and my so-called friends were nowhere to be found in the aftermath. It was a social circle where I always felt like the bad guy, the crazy one, the fool, but without it, I was profoundly lonely. I had a lot going for me at 20, a nice job, a nearly finished degree, but I couldn't stand the feeling of coming home to an empty house and an empty phone. And I thought, maybe, just maybe, this Jesus guy could hook it up with some newer, nicer buddies of my very own. <laughs> Elder Karen and Elder Corden quickly took me in as their own, even if I was a bit of an odd duck in their group. I did lessons over lunch with the boys, participated in four-night-a-week activities, bought knee-covering floral print dresses, and went to church with every young single adult Mormon of Long Beach. <laughs> they were California Mormons, less bigoted in practice as their scripture was in print, and I was starting to warm to them, growing closer as the weeks went on. I wasn't looking for a church by any means, but it looked like a church found me and gave me community that I needed to prop me out of my depression. One of the missionaries told me it was a sign from God that I ran into them that day. And I held that idea tightly because if God really did send them, it means that maybe she did give a shit about me in the first place. Essential idea in Mormonism is that if you ask God a question in good faith, you will always get an answer back. After much back and forth, politely declining offers to become an official member of the Joe Smith Social Club, the missionaries promised that they'd stop asking if I visited the DC temple on an upcoming trip to the east. 
I sat on a bench outside and prayed for an answer on whether the Book of Mormon was true. I rolled my eyes at the request, outwardly stating how utterly insane it sounded. But yet, a few months later, there I was, sneaking away from the work conference I was attending long enough to hop on the near-empty DC metro train in the, gloomy, in the middle of a gloomy spring Tuesday in my high-top chucks and warmest SoCal-grade winter coat, <laughs> waiting out the ride to the Maryland suburbs. After pulling into the station, I realized that even though it was connected by a major public transit, I was in the middle of nowhere, looking at nothing but a single silent street and a graveyard. Slightly alarmed, I scurried quickly to the pickup zone where the last temple shuttle was coming in five minutes. Five minutes turned into 10 minutes that turned into 15 minutes standing in the bitter cold until I started down the road on foot, just as the rain began to turn white. I pulled my hat over my headphones and headed down the path as I got lost in my thoughts. Well, you know, they're nice people with with good morals and stuff, I mean, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. They're a notoriously homophobic and racist organization that compares your ancestors to dirty, filthy, and loathsome people. Well, maybe I can, I can be a voice for change. <laughs> Don't all Mormons have like 15 kids? You refer to children as animated Satan come. <laughs> I don't, I'll, I'll figure it out later. Later, <laughs> bitch, you're 20, you're already two babies behind. <laughs> but they all look so happy. <laughs> My thoughts cut off as I hit the last square of sidewalk. The maps app was pushing me down a dense forest where anything further than 10 feet in front of me was swallowed by the fog. I took my chances, playing a real-life game of Frogger. I was getting honked at, flipped off, and as the slush falling from the sky came down harder, I started slipping down the shallow side banks. As much as I wanted to write this trip off as an obligation to humor my friends, I knew it was something that I wanted more strongly than I was willing to admit. It wasn't just the friends and the place to be on weeknights anymore. Problematic aspects and all, I wanted to be part of this community, a community that provided so much certainty in a time where I had none of it. When you're a Mormon, you go to church every Sunday, you get married, you have your babies, and you live your life in a manner that is perfectly and divinely mapped for you. It wasn't a life that I dreamed of, patriarchal and colorless, but it was a life that was safe and a people that made me feel safe. When I was in this community, I didn't have to worry about my children growing up in a broken home, about something being slipped in my drink, or whether I'd be pushed from behind into a bedroom at a party. I, was the, I wasn't their polished type, sailor's mouth, pierced, tattooed, and immodest as fuck. <laughs> but I knew that my previous life, surrounded by abuse and anger and addiction, wasn't an option anymore. I wasn't going to be the next family member in a long line of general trauma patients. I was willing to tweak myself, dedicate myself to this, if it meant quelling the constant anxiety and turmoil that I had been trapped in for years. It wasn't, an, it wasn't a want for my answer to be yes. It was a need. After some silence on the road for about an hour, I was able to scamper down the road until I got to a dirt bend where the sign beside an overpass read the words Mormon Temple, with an arrow pointing north. 
By this time, the slurry stopped and the sun began to peek out from the clouds, the light catching on the Angel Moroni statue blowing his trumpet above the treetops. I picked the foliage from out of my clothes and fixed my hair as I walked through the iron gates and turned to see the opening of, or turned through the opening to see the temple. It's Disneyland-esque gold and marble flawlessness sitting behind a field of tulips. For a moment, my heart welled with something my hardened, jaded soul almost couldn't identify. Hope. I cut myself off at this moment, eager to go ask my question. Before I entered the center, two perfectly groomed blonde women, missionaries but who probably could have passed for angels themselves, stood side by side as I walked closer to the doors. The women introduced themselves, asking if they could assist me before I told them what I was there to do. They looked at each other for a beat before turning back to me with a pitying look. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm afraid we can't let you in at this time. I stood there confused. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not trying to enter the temple. I just, we, we know. But, but you're, the second companion stops and gestures towards my shoes covered in a layer, incur, a layer of mud incurred from walking through the weather. You know, if I have, if you have a napkin, a paper towel, I could, you're welcome to come back another time, the first woman says. Please, I just, we hope you didn't travel too far. Get home safe, okay? She chirped before turning around and going back inside. I thought about staying in the parking lot, asking my very important question to God outside, but it seemed like he had already sent the signs. A missed shuttle, a treacherous walk. I mean, shit, God's very own PR team just told me themselves. <laughs> I was not welcome. The clouds once again closed and the rain started as I went down the path I came, the car swishing dangerously close to me while the sky grew darker and darker. As my emotions crept up into my throat, I turned my music up louder until I slipped face down into a patch of dirty snow, where I stayed for a minute as the tears warmed my face. The suspicion of what Mormon culture thought of people like me was confirmed. A dirty stranger who had no place in their home. An outsider who, no matter what I did, could never be one of them. More importantly at that point, I came to the realization that this must have been what God thought of me too. Irredeemable. I got on the train and went back to the Omni I was staying at in the city, ignoring the lobby full of my colleagues, probably wondering why the fuck I was covered in mud. I went home the next day, ignoring my phone blowing up with texts from elders asking how awesome the temple was, how strong the spirit moved me, and of course, if I would like to buy them lunch so I can tell them all about it. After reading these and thinking, there's no way these motherfuckers can be real about this, it struck me. These boys and the sisters at the temple are my age, probably convincing, convincing themselves the same thing that I am, that their life path was one that was going to keep them safe. The sense of dread I had felt at the prospect of having to pave a new life from scratch started to feel like a mark of pride. It was hard, as hard as it would be to forge a new identity from nearly nothing, I wasn't going to spend my life being a square peg. As I ghosted the elders and in a gentler way told my Mormon friends about the, my realization, this, these texts and visits came less and less frequent and I was okay with it. 
Kindness and structure aren't exclusive in religion, and I slowly but surely realized that there, was plenty of, there were plenty of others who would grant me that just being me. With the mud cleaned off my chucks and my coat back from the dry cleaners, I blocked their numbers and ventured off to find a life path more true to myself, preferably one that would let me have the occasional IPA and three hours of my Sunday back. <laughs> That's our friend Kirsten Hernandez. Kirsten Hernandez. Our fourth storyteller came to us all the way from Canada to make her vamp debut. Won't you welcome Shannon Kernagan performing Cue the Scary Soundtrack. During a wine-fueled evening of dreaming and a craving for adventure, my husband and I decided to purchase an RV. Our plan was to head to the US. Not forever, since we had to return to Canada for work, but for as long as it took to avoid a cold Alberta winter. Neither of us had any background with recreational vehicles or spent any time in the wilderness. <laughs> Besides a few party campfires, our only experience in the great outdoors involved a truck tent, which is exactly how it sounds, a tent designed to fit the back of a truck's box. During our first night, the wind and rain whipped our tent so violently that we couldn't sleep. The crash of a tree made our next decision easy. <laughs> At dawn, we folded that tent <laughs> and later dropped it off at a Salvation Army. <laughs> if I learned anything from our blustery night, it's that I hate feeling vulnerable, especially when isolated in the woods. <laughs> and I worry about everything. I am not a happy camper. <laughs> That's okay. But an RV. For two decades, we talked about how free we'd feel soaring down the highway. And unlike tents, RVs had a roof and walls. Now that's where we could feel safer from the elements. <laughs> Speaking of elements. <laughs> How hard could it be, Paul said, as he flipped through RV catalogs with glossy pages and alluring banners. Unscheduled, go RVing. And RV, RV travel does the heart good. And my favorite, oh darling, let's be adventurous. <laughs> this looks like fun, I said, imagining my adventurous hat pulled on tight. <laughs> A symbolic hat that would unlock new doors and offer us new choices. The thought of traveling and exploring felt exciting and powerful. In 2006, we bought an 18-foot tow trailer. For our first RV, we didn't want anything too big or complicated. The first time I stepped inside, I felt cozy. It reminded me of a playhouse, from its scaled-down cupboards to its small sinks and appliances. It also had an adorable bathroom and tub-shower combo. <laughs> As a child, I'd begged my parents for a little playhouse of my own. But then I also begged for a horse, and I didn't get either of them. <laughs> Before venturing across the border, we wanted a practice, practice run, so headed for a camping excursion in our own province. Within hours of RV ownership, Pounding hail forced us off the highway. 
it smashed the rooftop vent and broke off the ceiling fan, leaving my adorable bathroom wet and open to the sky. You've got to be kidding, I said, mopping the floor and gathering shards of plastic. This means we're hail christened, right, honey? He didn't answer. He was busy on the roof, figuring out which parts we'd need for replacement. Better he did more fixing than talking because his can-do attitude always calmed me down. Bring on the learning curve in our home is where you park it lifestyle. For example, bad weather follows when you live in a trailer. Within minutes of unrolling the awning at our first campsite in the Rockies, clouds moved in and dumped more rain and hail. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> I called out as hail hammered our roof again. Over the roaring wind, Paul couldn't hear me. He was struggling to roll up the awning again. <laughs> the, star the storm broke long enough to start a campfire. Then came another blitz of rain. Paul covered our sputtering flames with a tarp. We hunched under that tarp, each holding up a corner and gasping for air. Through fits of coughing, I called out, is this the fun part? <laughs> I, I couldn't see him through all the smoke. Good times. <laughs> Back to the learning curve. Always keep track of numbers. Our electrical panel was 30 amps, which meant we could only run certain appliances at the same time. In addition to the fridge and lighting system, our microwave needed 12 amps, the space heater 10, and our coffee maker 8. Decide what's most important. Your nuke leftovers, warm toes, or a cup of joe. You can't have everything together. And if Paul wanted to plug something into an outside socket, he'd have to get clearance for me on the inside. Wait, I'd call out. I'll turn off the kettle. Is it time to crank on the air conditioner? Factor in 15 amps for that Titan. We constantly pulled cords and flipped switches. This unscheduled lifestyle grew complicated. <laughs> Unplugged was closer to reality. <laughs> There's more to that learning curve. Expect the unexpected. During our first winter outside Canada, Paul wanted to spend a few nights in the Arizona desert. As we drove out of Quartzsite, I questioned this move. Not only were we out of visual range of the city, but we were out of roads, driving slowly <laughs> to avoid large rocks <laughs> and deep gulches. Honey, I said, if we have to get out fast, there's no way. Where's your sense of adventure? Stop worrying all the time. But that's what I do. Somebody has to worry. I'm the logical slash anxious one in our relationship. I list bullet points of danger, of possible dangers, in a high-pitched voice. Well, Paul's the don't worry about it guy who simply doesn't break a sweat under pressure. Turns out it was a cool experience with the desert's rocky terrain, cactus, roadrunners, and bobcats. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We also spotted a few small tents as we drove, yet nobody was around, not even a parked vehicle. Paul, I don't feel good about this. Maybe people sleep in them and work in town for the season, Paul said. Why else would somebody piss, uh, anybody pitch a tent in the middle of nowhere? Now, 
Tents don't look strange when set up in monitored campsites or in a state park and filled with travelers, but scattered in the middle of a desert with nothing and nobody around? I was getting a weird vibe. With the sight of flat land, Paul stopped and parked. Although we had no idea how far we'd headed from civilization, the breeze felt warm in our lawn chairs, the beverages poured cold, and then the sunset. Suddenly, everything outside our RV windows looked shadowy and unrecognizable. Paul, my phone isn't getting a signal. Where are we? I, I've no idea, but we'll be okay. We'll be fine. His voice had less conviction since losing our sunshine. We'd just gone to bed when a light flashed across our wall. What the hell? I whispered. A car appeared and made a slow circle around our trailer before driving away. Minutes later, it returned and circled again just as slowly. Our escape plan? We had nothing. <laughs> Weapons? Nada. Worse, we couldn't drive away without leaving the RV to get to our truck. Before that, we needed to hand crank the jacks that balanced our trailer. And how fast could we drive across deep trenches in the dark with a trailer behind us? The car returned and circled a third time. By now, we'd yanked on our jeans and Paul dug through the cutlery drawer for sharp objects. Every horror movie I'd ever watched bombarded my brain. I envisioned our horrifying future. The door kicked in. Sweaty people pointing weapons. Me peeing my pants. <laughs> Neither of us spoke. All I heard was my shallow breathing and pounding heart. We stood on guard, Paul with a bread knife and me with a meat tenderizer. <laughs> I started to pant. For sure they'd steal our truck and trailer. Would our sun-dried bodies ever be found? Is this it? I'm not ready. And then, nothing. No more flashes of headlights, no more circling car. Paul snorted and started to giggle. What's so bloody funny? I snapped. <laughs> I bet that car was somebody, I bet that car was somebody looking for their tent. One of those tents we drove past? They were probably lost in the dark. Phew. My heart rate and breathing slowed, although I kept on my jeans and sneakers and didn't sleep more than a few minutes at a stretch. Paul spooned me tightly, and I'd never appreciated the rising sun as much in my life. While scary movies are entertaining, the plots take on new meaning when there's a chance you are about to play a starring role. <laughs> Once back in town and plugged into the services of an RV park, we agreed that our off-road experience was done. Glad we did it, and glad it was over. I'd never realized how much I rely on services like cell phones, electricity, and someone to call for help. After that scary night, my adventurous hat fit better, and then I grew a little braver with every new journey. I imagined fewer what-ifs when we hitched up and headed out to different locations. <laughs> And was I having fun? Absolutely. I love this alternate lifestyle. The unexpected places we landed and the quirky travelers we met. We lived out a dream we'd invented for ourselves 20 years earlier, together, 
Paul and I enjoyed the lifestyle so much that we ordered a bigger trailer and lived in it for six years, spending half the year parked between two casinos in Las Vegas and the other half on an Alberta horse ranch. What's not to love? One day in Vegas, while putting away groceries, I realized that it took me until middle age, but I finally got my playhouse and my horse play. Best of all, I survived. I have my PhD in RV. Good times indeed. That was Vamp First Timer, Shannon Kernagan. Fifth out the gate, the professor, our board member, one of eight, Mr. Dustin Markell and his opus of the week, The Men in Black. Enjoy. All right. How y'all doing tonight? How y'all doing, LA? What's up? What's up? All right. Is that cool? That's cool? All right. <clears throat> Do you remember where you were the night of the slap? My wife, Nicole, and I were watching the Oscars that night for the same reason we do every year. So that when the inevitable groans emerged the morning after about how lame, long, or predictable the show had been, we'd at least know what all the hate was about firsthand. Plus, if I may be sentimental, there's still something magical about the movies. And I still appreciate the glamor, the dad jokes, the nostalgic navel-gazing that the Oscar ceremony provides. Indeed, there's a comfort in the expected, in the tradition that brings the audience back each year. Or at least, there was. Before award presenter Chris Rock made an easy joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's bald head to the ire of her husband and Best, best Actor nominee, Will Smith, who got up from his seat sauntered onto the stage like he was Jim West and slapped Chris Rock dead in his mouth and then casually walked back to his seat to hear the nominees for Best Documentary. To those who only heard about the next day, I, I can't stress how surreal it was to watch in real time. As a lifelong pro wrestling fan, I was convinced that it had all been a work of some sort, some poorly executed bit. But it was clear that someone had gone off script when the notoriously clean rapper yelled at Chris Rock, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth while wearing a tuxedo <laughs> from the front row of the Academy Awards to the stunned silence of a Hollywood elite. The whole display had been an attack on our collective sense of reality, a truly traumatizing televised event on the level of a live suicide or a woman's nipple. <laughs> Far from a work, it was a certified real moment in a life where everything can be such a performance. And while that moment left so many people absolutely shook, appalled that Will Smith ultimately won Best Actor instead of being immediately arrested, shackled, and dragged out of the Dolby Theater for the safety of all in attendance, all I could do was nod, suck my teeth, 
and turn to Nicole and think, I wish a motherfucker would say something about my wife. <laughs> I tell you, I was fuming, but not out of anger, I don't think. It was more like this shot of adrenaline that had me pacing up and down my living room, mentally flipping through my go-to rage fantasies. Some faceless aggressor mouthing off to my wife, me tossing him through a plate glass window, or punching him in his throat, or knocking him down on his ass and crushing his ankle so that he can't get back up, maybe cracking him in the jaw with a thick, hard-covered book, or simply snatching the asshole by the collar and demanding that he apologize to Nicole before I stomp him to the fucking ground. Because like Will Smith, I understood what it meant to defend my wife's honor in the most chest-pounding way possible and to expect to be applauded accordingly for my chivalry. <laughs> that night, I chatted with a friend who works in PR. She proclaimed the whole thing very messy and said that we may even be witnessing the end of Will's career. After all, his whole brand had been built upon being a good guy, one who just oozed positivity and who could put us all at ease with a flash of a friendly smile. Indeed, he was so beloved in large part because he was so friendly and inoffensive, so non-threatening. And he had thrown that all away with one impulsive move. But I didn't see it that way. Yes, the moment had been disruptive, and it had clouded every highlight of the Oscar telecast, both before and after the slap itself. Nobody cared anymore about historic wins or why exactly we don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> but at the same time, Hollywood loves violence. War, cowboys, cops, and killer robots? Was not the slap followed shortly thereafter by a tribute to The Godfather? More importantly, we as a society love violence. Who among us hasn't enjoyed a ghoulish true crime podcast or a chaotic world star video? I know that I've fallen down a rabbit hole watching videos of flagrant racists taking beatings at various fast food restaurants. And that's just it. We especially love to see a bad guy get his ass handed to him to see him punished, embarrassed, and erased, because that is what justice looks like. That's not to say that Chris Rock, who once joked that the reason we have so many fat kids around now is that there aren't enough bullies to take their lunch money, is necessarily a bad guy. But that night, he'd insulted the dignity of another man's wife, and custom dictates that it's up to that man to protect her honor and to send a message. The inevitable online discourse began that night with some initial finger-wagging at the Fresh Prince. But I chalk these early returns up to the ignorance of those who demand peace in a society without the stomach to do what's needed to keep it. I'd expected a segment of the population to celebrate Will the same way we celebrate tough guys on screen. But as the night wore on with more reactions, there appeared to be scant support on the socials for this particular outlaw. <laughs> I've forgotten, of course, an important factor in our culture's response to violence. 
that while a white guy with a loaded gun might save the day, a nigga with an attitude is a dangerous thing. Because in our society, there's a difference between white violence and black violence, between soldiers and gangsters, patriots and thugs, and where aggro white boys are permitted to take up all the air in the room, black men are taught from a young age to stay small or else. Our love affair with violence tends to turn sour when committed by black people. And when even the threat of that violence spills out of its designated space, something has to be done. This is a decent, civilized, law-abiding society after all. And if we, that is, the blacks, wish to be accepted as full-fledged members of this society, to be invited to all the posh parties, and to be honored with trophies and money and fame, then we're going to have to learn to suppress our savage behavior. That night, I argued with another friend, a white friend, a good friend, now former friend, who shared with me that he was sick of hearing my takes on race, and that Will Smith just needed to learn how to, quote, behave himself. I shared with him a tweet from another black professor I know about how white people were generally incapable of thinking outside of themselves as the universal, and were constantly pathologizing black behavior. In the end, as far as his former friend was concerned, my refusal to denounce the slap meant that Will Smith hadn't been the only Negro that night who didn't know his place. And so after a tense back and forth with this fool, I turned around and I dropped him with one punch and stood over him, seething, wiping the spit from my lips, barking in his face, who the fuck are you to tell us how to behave? all of my head, of course. <laughs> because in reality, I've never been in an actual fight. <laughs> A big reason for this is that I've always been afraid to get hit in the mouth. <laughs> when I was four, I had an accident in the bathtub that resulted in my prematurely losing my two front teeth. I remember my mother rushing into the bathroom and my grabbing hold of her, sobbing, soaking her nightgown in blood. And ever since then, I've been extra vigilant when it comes to those teeth. To this day, I use my tongue to cover my gums every time I walk up a flight of stairs afraid to leave myself unprotected in the event that I fall. And I avoid situations that could get me rocked in the mouth. Of course, that is to stop people from assuming that I'm asking for trouble. In the rare event that I have to ward off drunken hipsters in my neighborhood, I can get by by simply making myself real big and loud like in a bear attack. <laughs> I've got the kind of look that tends to keep people from openly challenging me. Or, for, or from asking me for donations outside of Vons. It's a look that had the folks at one job constantly asking me, what's wrong? Just because I didn't smile all the goddamn time. 
a job that I inevitably lost because my lack of obvious joviality supposedly scared the shit out of some people. All while my white colleagues complained, argued, threw the occasional chair, and freely whipped out their proverbial dicks in staff meetings. My problem, you see, was that I had failed to make myself sufficiently small. Another such failure occurred a couple of years ago, just before another vamp performance. While having dinner ahead of the show, a white family, a woman, her young kids, and a grandmother sat at a table awkwardly close to me and my wife. The kids scrambled around their space and ours, while mom and grandma kibitzed along with no contrition towards us and no apparent interest in their disruptive offspring. The little girl had this nasty stuffed animal that she dragged along the floor. And at one point, she dropped it directly into my wife's plate. I turned to the mother and raised my arms to convey my annoyance, simply to say, do you mind? <laughs> Turns out, she did, in fact, mind. She started berating me, accusing me of terrifying her kids, who by now were both hiding underneath the table. I calmly offered that perhaps it was her own yelling and cursing that had frightened her children. Because keep in mind, up to now, I literally hadn't said a word to this woman, let alone to her raggedy children. <laughs> But it was enough that I had dared to shift out of my lane to suggest that she probably do well to keep an eye on her own. Imagine if I had shown her exactly just who I am <laughs> and what I could be. Didn't this woman know how many tables I flipped over in my own head? How many people I'd imagined beating into a wet mess into the pavement? We got out of there before anyone got hurt, frankly, before my wife could beat the shit out of her. <laughs> and I later hit the vamp stage, drunk on Karen, acutely aware of just how easily any of us can turn and be turned into monsters. And then there was this time back in college. I shared an apartment with a bunch of guys, and I came home from work one night to find the homies on the couch with a few open beers on the coffee table. This guy, Max, a white guy from South Africa, a friend of a friend, really, mumbled an insult aimed at me the moment I walked through the door, before I could even put down my bag. Naturally, everyone had a good laugh at my expense, so I plopped down next to him on the couch and asked him to repeat himself. To which he said, jokingly, observantly, though frankly, unoriginally, you're fat, in his nasal colonizer accent. In response, I wheeled around and I decked him hard. Everyone stopped laughing after that. And when Max finally lifted his head, there was blood pouring from his mouth and smeared all across his face. Because in an ironic twist, it turns out that I had, in fact, knocked out his two front teeth. Yeah. 
I apologized to Max right then, and again later we ran into each other on campus, his dental implants looking remarkably real. <laughs> and we wrote the whole thing off as an accident, horseplay, boys will be boys and all that. It wasn't even a fight, technically, because, of course, Max hadn't had the chance to hit me back. And even he agreed, as others had, that he'd been long overdue for a pop in the mouth. But what stays with me is the idea of just how quickly things can go sideways. My life could have been over in that instant had Max's wealthy parents seen the value in flying all the way from Joburg just to sue my broke black ass. I was lucky that I wasn't rich or famous and that the world hadn't caught me slipping on broadcast TV. The thing is, you don't always know the damage you're capable of doing, even unintentionally. That night as we waited for updates from the hospital, smoking cigarettes on our balcony, I laughed nervously and told a roommate who'd witnessed the incident that it was all just so strange because it hadn't even really been bad. He took a long, perceptive drag, turned to me and said, you sure look mad. Indeed, for all the rage fantasies before and since, the actual act of attacking someone proved far less satisfying than I would have thought. Because maybe there's a difference between being a witness to violence and being the perpetrator of that violence. Maybe because true rage is so blinding that in the moment, you can't clearly see anything, least of all yourself. So far, it doesn't look as though Will Smith's life or career are quite over just yet, even if his reputation has taken a hit. His latest film, Emancipation, is based on the true story behind a famous 1863 photo in which the runaway slave displays the scars he's accumulated over the years from all the whipping he's endured. Will jump-started his cautious promotional tour on The Daily Show, and when asked about the slap, he relayed something that his mother had once said, something my own mother once told me when I was a kid, that you never know what somebody is going through. Maybe, he went on to say, somebody's mother died last week, somebody's child is sick, somebody just lost their job, and you just don't know what's going on with people and he was going through something the night of the Oscars. That's what that something was exactly had been the subject of much speculation and plenty of jokes lobbed at the Smith family. According to Will himself in that Daily Show interview, that something was, quote, a lot of things. It was a little boy who watched his father beat up his mother. All of that just bubbled up in that moment. He writes in his memoir about the time he witnessed his father punch his mother in the side of her head so hard she collapsed. That moment, he writes, probably more than any other moment in my life has defined who I am. Hearing this, I couldn't help but think about the journey of a boy whose earliest memories is of his father's fist flying in the distance while he impotently watches unscathed. Perhaps that boy learns early on that a smile might keep him safe. And so he learns how to wield his charm and to perform for his own protection. 
Perhaps he develops an affinity for a hero born out of violence, baptized in a pool of his mother's blood. Perhaps he grows up to be a man obsessed with relevance, with a persistent need to rescue women in particular, whether or not they ask for his help, and becomes confused and resentful when they don't. And so perhaps he becomes a paradox, someone who's desperate to be loved, and yet hell-bent on proving just how fleeting that love really is. Maybe a boy like that grows up ready to punch a hole in the world, even though he knows that doing so could crack the veneer he's perfected over the years, and that it could easily be the last move he makes. Because despite all of that, he's expected to keep himself small, no matter how big he gets. I wasn't sure what punishment Will Smith deserved for the slap. As I saw it, if Chris Rock wasn't going to press charges, it wasn't the Academy's business to punish him ostensibly for the brutal crime of committing a party foul. I remember waiting for the verdict and just hoping that whatever happened, Will wouldn't be stripped of the Best Actor award he'd won that night because so few of us had made it to the mountaintop. And to me, that would have been like erasing him from memory, as though all that time and all that work to become everyone's favorite Negro had been all for nothing. And I was chilled by the realization that whatever good we did in this life could easily be wiped out with one bad day. In the end, the Academy went from crowning Will Smith to abandon this nigga for 10 years from the Oscar ceremony. The same Oscar ceremony that once saw Roman Polanski get a standing ovation while in exile for statutory rape. The same ceremony that on the night of the slap, the late William Hurt was honored in memorial despite being accused of sexual assault by the star of that year's Best Picture winner. But I guess someone had to pay for traumatizing Amy Schumer. Long after the slap, I still see posts and hear comments from the virtuous among us, so invested they are in the villain of the day. Because like in pro wrestling, bad guys unite us. They give us someone to root against. They validate our contempt and fortify our concept of the good, all while upholding our image of ourselves as good people. We think that if we can spot the villain, point him out, accuse him, see to it that he is punished, then certainly we can't be at fault. Surely our hands must be clean. I think about what the public's disgust for Will Smith says about its inevitable disgust for me. How disposable will I be the next time I forget to smile when the time comes for my bad day? when it all bubbles up for me. When those who praise me today, tomorrow make a meal of my evil. When it becomes more advantageous to turn their backs on me than to stand beside me. There's no question that there's a limit to their love and their forgiveness. The question is, what will their limit be? What will be yours? And what will be said about me for my memorial? That Daily Show interview concluded with Will pleading for us to all be nice to one another, 
For that to be possible, we may have to let go of our need to prove that we are the good guys. After all, just because we're the hero in our own story doesn't mean we aren't the villain in somebody else's. Maybe if we all stop performing so much and we have no more use for the veneer, we'll be free to live without constant fear of it being cracked. Until then, when the bad guy is next needed, you can find me out on the precipice, looking down, laid bare, my scars exposed and my tongue spread out across my gums, holding my breath, waiting for that push, and wishing a motherfucker would. Los Angeles' own, and so say we all board member, that's Dustin Markell. Dustin Markell. And finally, taking us home tonight, Sam DeSalvo carries us across the plate with her piece, Born Emo. I'm coming to the end of a stretch on my Peloton app, set to an all-Beyonce soundtrack. I take a sip from my brightly colored hydro flask, which I bought because I saw so many influencers chugging out the same pastel vessel. I have certainly released all of my childhood trauma that so many instructors tell me builds up in my hips. (laughs) I have breathed in an intention to change what I can and breathed out the darkness of what I cannot. I have completed my weekly stretching streak, and as my instructor says to me, has anyone ever told you that you're incredibly beautiful and that's the least interesting thing about you? I shed a tear. I am a self-love goddess, subsisting on deep breaths, water from teal jugs, and clean foods. I see the good in the world, and I cherish it for the blessings it has bestowed upon me. But all this feels a bit foreign, a slight betrayal to my factory settings, as those settings are set to sad. (laughs) Some say you're born with it, others say you choose it. The way I look at it, I was born emo. (laughs) And at my core, I'm still emo. It's not a phase, mom. If you're only vaguely familiar with the music genre turned lifestyle, or you're confusing it with goth, let me explain. I think emos get conflated with goths a lot. And please, don't get it twisted. I love goths. I have immense respect for my elders. (laughs) Having both written very bad poetry for the people we love, and cried during sex with them, Goths and emos have a lot in common, but there's a key difference between goth and emo. Goth's roots are in punk music, anti-establishment, anti-authority, and anti-mainstream. Goths want to be loved, sure, but they don't need to be liked. If you're emo, you want to be liked. (laughs) You want to be validated. Yes, no one understands me, but oh my fucking God, wouldn't it be great if they did? Here's an example of that burning plea to be liked in in lyrics from a Taking Back Sunday song. (laughs) The truth is, you could slit my throat, and with one last gasping breath, I'd apologize for bleeding on your shirt. (laughs) 
Thirsty! <laughs> My first hit of emo could not have come at a more perfect time. The year I started high school, there was a big snowstorm right before winter break. This resulted in a month of school being canceled. I think movies had made me think snow days were going to be fun, full of mischief and maybe some romance. These movies were also called Snow Day. <laughs> in reality, when you don't drive and you just started out of school where you aren't really that close with anyone, plus hormones, being snowed in when you're 14 is incredibly lonely. There's a reason they didn't make the movie Snow Month. My days consisted mostly of refreshing my MySpace page and listening to the songs posted on everyone else's. It was through this cycle I discovered Weezer's The Blue Album. I was playing it start to finish at least four times a day. Track three, The World Has Turned and Left Me Here. Thank you, thank you so much fellow emotes. That song really hit. The world indeed had. I was inside my house with my dad, watching Shallow Hell. <laughs> the rest of the world was out there, falling in love, making friends, and treating their depression. I was not. Probably a huge reason why emo music resonated with me so much was the genre's recognition of a divide. The world is different than me because the world doesn't seem to wake up daily enveloped by a misery cocktail of dread, avoidance, and longing. There's an incredibly relatable, this is incredibly relatable during an already isolating times such as your teens. It's even more relatable when you have depression, but you don't know it's called that, and no one in the world around you believes it's real. <laughs> so you play Weezer's Blue Album 17 more times. The snow melted that year, but my black heart did not. Over the years, I dyed my dark brown hair jet black just to show my commitment to the cause. I wore nothing but black. I only listened to bands whose song titles were more than seven words long. And I fucking pined. The feeling of being alone is one of the most common themes in emo music, but there's another one that's even more alluring, sexual even. A through line in emo music is that once you find someone just as misunderstood as you, and you two fall in love, you must escape the chains of the small town you live in. <laughs> I refer to this theme as, let's get out of this town. They don't understand our love. <laughs> when I was 16, I was given an emo gift. I no longer had to imagine heartbreaks illustrated for me in songs because I had one of my own. My suffering was no longer unfounded and my dad could stop yelling why do you play that music? Your life is great. Stop fucking crying. <laughs> we love our dads, right? After listening to all this emo music, I hadn't lusted just after love, but the fallout as well. And hell hath no fury, like an emo who has been dumped. And when I mean fury, I mean frequent crying and journaling. Here's a journal entry from right around the time the breakup happened. Note that I write that I'm playing Elliot Smith, someone who even emo kids are like, damn, that's sad music. Okay, here it is. I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel like summer's dying young. I just keep getting really sad and crying. I don't know what over but I'm sure it's subconscious loneliness becoming conscious. I miss love so much. Just that feeling you get. 
I don't miss anyone. Just miss that feeling a lot, every day. Max is such a fucking douche. <laughs> this heartbreak was basically made in an emo lab. I made out with this guy, Max, for the first time at a Death Cab for Cutie concert. During, I will follow you into the dark. A song that is so emo that it takes a romance that's going well and turns it into a promise to haunt your lover long after they're dead. Max was supposed to be my guy that I left with because the town didn't understand our love. But he left me for another girl with a boy's name and hair just like mine that was somehow both short on top but long on the bottom. Though my eyeliner could not have been thicker and blacker in high school, I, like most people, took college as an opportunity to change who I was. This fatefully coincided with many emo bands going into hibernation. So I very much embraced the twee style of Zoe Deschanel, wearing fedoras and men's shirts as dresses. I only listened to bands like Vampire Weekend and Animal Collective, recommended to me by my coworkers at, where else? the college radio station. <laughs> Basically, my new persona was being annoying. <laughs> I majored in creative writing and was in an improv troupe, which means I got a certificate for my bad poetry and in my spare time was begging people to pay attention to me on stage. <laughs> Despite my best efforts, I stayed very emo during college. Plus, I was still furiously crying and journaling. I'd switched from pen and paper to Tumblr. Here's one of the entries. <laughs> Looks like things were going well. <laughs> I hadn't found the misunderstood love of my life to run away with, so I ran away on my own, which I think is even more emo, if I do say so myself. After college, I moved from my hometown of Reno, Nevada to San Francisco. And yeah, I found love several times in the arms of addicts, manic depressives, and ex-punk band members. In emo terms, I had made it. <laughs> I even got to do stand-up as an opener for one of my favorite emo bands, Minus the Bear. I showed my respect for the band by doing what any emo person would do, by avoiding eye contact and nodding at them. Eventually, though, I found love that didn't seem like it was written in a Taking Back Sunday song. And he was great, despite never even hearing of Minus the Bear. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> even when I found love and things in my life were going relatively well, something was missing. There's a sick desire within emo culture and me that lurks long after the pining has stopped. There's always a little bit of, a little bit of me that wears sad color lenses that even when the world seems to finally align with me, there's a part that prefers it dark, with headphones on, looking out the snow-covered hills and longing. Then it hit, the most emo time in recent history, 2020. <laughs> it was like the whole world had a snow week, then a snow month, then a snow two years. We could only see the people we loved and wait for it to get better. During the pandemic, I lost my job, I lost out on a lot of opportunities, and I lost people very close to me. I felt really lost. So, of course, I furiously cried and journaled. Here's my journal from 2020. It's in Google Docs, which shows the passage of time. 
Lately, I've been wondering if social distance is just my preferred MO. I was an anxious teenager who has blossomed into an anxious adult, so I simply have a preference for a light house arrest. It's still so emo. Like I said, there's a part of me that's always feeling for when the bottom is going to fall out. And when it did during the pandemic, I felt strangely at home. For once, I felt the world was ending, and it actually was. Everyone was wearing the sad colored lenses. And I low-key thrived during the pandemic. The quickness with which I made an emo playlist on Spotify and played it over and over would make my 14-year-old self proud. I blasted sad songs. I cut my own bangs. But this time, my depression was treated. I have been on meds for four years. I cannot advertise them enough. Just take the drugs, guys. Now I get what my chemical romance is. It's me and my antidepressants. As for actual romance, I not only got engaged during 2020, but I got married during 2020. We actually had to run back to my hometown for the ceremony, which is kind of a reverse emo of running away because they don't understand our love. But if getting married during the saddest time in recent history isn't the most emo romance, I don't know what is. When I was younger, being emo was looked upon as some self-indulgent act. That instead of just working through my problems, I was committing some crime against coping. But in reality, emo music was all I had. I didn't know who I was or why I felt so sad, but the raw and honest pain the lyrics expressed empowered me to feel okay expressing the same. In emo music, there is no such thing as too dramatic. There's only more cathartic. Though you may experience highs, emo music lives at an all-time low. <laughs> One that you can always revisit when you feel invisible to feel seen. These days, I go to therapy, I take meds, I have a self-care ritual, complete with Peloton sweat sets, Taylor Swift yoga routines, and hydro flasks. And sure, it all works fine. But honestly, putting on Weezer's The Blue Album does the trick just the same. Thank you. Sam DeSalvo! That was Sam DeSalvo, and that concludes this episode of the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, Midnight Strikes, recorded at Bar Lubitsch in West Hollywood, January of 2023. Your storytellers once again were Jennifer Corley, Travis Lowe, Kirsten Hernandez, Shannon Kernagan, Dustin Markell, and Sam DeSalvo. Make sure you subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you haven't already. And would you please leave us a rating and a review to make the robots think that you like us. If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get in touch, upcoming live shows that you can be a part of, and more, hop on over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall, Jennifer Corley is So Say We All's Program Director, Jake Arkey is our Los Angeles production manager, and Brent Hanavy is our social media manager. Our original music is provided by the socialite Kurt Conan of AMFM Music, and our outro music, Blue Little, graciously given to us for use by 1032. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. Isn't that you? If not, it should be. We'd love to have you. Just hop on over to sosayweallonline.com support and sign up at any level of monthly giving to keep our lights on or toss us a one-time donation. It helps more than you know. 
Thanks so much for listening this time. If you're in L.A. this weekend, we hope to see you. And maybe the next story on our stage and podcast will be yours. <laughs>